Hello everyone and welcome to today's Shoeswiss podcast where we're going to be covering the topics of definitions and interpretation. My name is Paul Nightingale and I'm a Principal Associate in the Commercial and Projects team here at Shoeswiss. Hi everyone, my name is Killen Gohill and I'm an Associate in the Commercial and Projects team at Shoesmiths. So how about we start with the basics? Killen, can you give us an idea of what we mean when we talk about uh, definitions and interpretation clause? Sure. As you might guess from the name, there are two distinct parts. So let's look at the definitions part. This is basically a part of the contract that defines all the important concepts that come later in the main section. So for example, who the service provider is, what the goods are, and what the framework agreement is. Yeah, defined terms will usually appear as capitalised phrases. For example, referring to business day with capital letters as opposed to simply business day in lowercase. When you see a capitalised term in the document, you should look back to the definitions clause to see what it's been defined as. Yeah, this is important. Because although it might sound obvious what something like a business day should mean, it actually may be defined as something completely unexpected. Yeah, it could mean a business day for a retail business, for example, which might fall on different days to the standard business days for a bank. Or it might mean a business day in another country that has different working days. Yes, yeah, same thing with something like services. Where you see this with a capital letter in the context of a software agreement, it might mean that services here specifically mean services relating to the software platform, for example. So in that particular contract, you'd know that every time you see the word services in capitals, it refers to those services relating to the software platform. And every time you see it without the capital letter, it will refer more generally to ordinary services. So I guess we can say the purpose of defining terms in an agreement is to add clarity and a common understanding? Correct. Definitions provide specific meanings for key terms and phrases, ensuring that everyone interprets them consistently and minimizing chances of confusion. Without clear definitions, misunderstandings can arise, potentially leading to disputes. Hmm. Okay. Let's consider an example that's a bit more complicated and that shows how a definitions clause might avoid confusion. All right. Let's say two parties, company A and company B, enter into a contract for the supply of a software system. The contract specifies that company A will provide customized software to company B. However, the contract fails to define what customized software means. Okay, now let's say during the development process, company A delivers a software system to company B that is built on pre-existing functionalities and allows for configuration, but doesn't involve any specific bespoke modifications. Company B then argues that the software does not align with their understanding of customized software and claims that company A breached the contract. Yeah, so in response, company A might say that their interpretation of customized software was a system that has been tailored to meet general industry standards and allow for configuration, but without bespoke development. Company A could argue that they fulfilled their obligations based on their understanding of the term. Right. So you can see how a dispute has arisen that could have easily been avoided with a clear definition of customized software of a contract. Yeah. If there'd been a capitalized definition of customized software that said, for example, customized software means bespoke software designed, written, or modified to company B specifications. In that case, the parties could have had a shared understanding from the beginning and avoided the dispute. Correct. And bearing in mind, this kind of dispute could result in expensive legal proceedings for both parties. You can see how important it is that you get the definitions right. Yeah. So some practical points then. 
why not just define the term every time you use it? Wouldn't that avoid ambiguity in the same way? Mm, well, well, yeah. And this could be uh, fine in a short contract. But if it's occurring multiple times, it would end up with some pretty unwieldy clauses. So imagine having to write bespoke software designed, written, or modified to company B's specifications every single time you refer to customized software. By including once in a list at the beginning, you're saving space and including a handy reference for whoever's reading the contract. So you could think of it a bit like a glossary in a textbook then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's another good point to mention. The definitions clause almost always appears at either the front or the back of the contract in the same way that a glossary would appear in a book. Yeah, I suppose it makes it the easiest way to refer back to the terms whenever one comes up. Yeah, and we should add that where it's particularly on a contract, the definitions might be in a specific schedule at the end. Good to know. Um, so one thing about having a separate definitions clause is that it can be hard to read in isolation. So if you're reviewing a contract, it usually makes more sense to skip the definitions clause at first and then have them beside you when you review. Either printed out or on split screen, something like that. Yeah, exactly. So having them beside you as you read through the rest of the contract to ensure the definitions make sense in each place. Well, the benefit of having the definitions all together in one place is that you can easily locate a definition rather than having to trawl through the entire document to find it, especially if the definition appears in a number of different clauses. It's also to consider if they're in alphabet alphabetical order. Yeah, that generally makes it easier if they're in alphabetical order because it's easier to follow and uh, review. Um, and that's why, as a general rule, whenever a term appears in a contract, you should make sure it's carried over into the definitions clause so that it, the definitions clause com is a complete list of all the defined terms in the contract. Right. Um, are there any other things you should be aware of in a definitions clause? Well, defined terms might sometimes be in italics or underlined instead of using capital letters. This is particularly the case in languages like Chinese and Japanese that don't have the concept of capital letters. Um, whatever form they take, definitions should always follow a consistent convention. Another thing to be aware of is that sometimes sections of a text in a contract may have been copied and pasted from other agreements. If someone has copied wording from one contract into another when drafting, there may be errors if they haven't paid attention to whether the definitions need changing as well. Yeah, in that situation, you might end up with what looks like a defined term, but which actually doesn't refer to anything. An extreme example might be where a copy definition refers to a delivery date as the date when the software will be delivered as specified in Schedule 3. But there is no reference to this Schedule 3, or there may not be a Schedule 3 at all. You can see how this might create confusion problems. Yeah, so the moral of that story is, if you're using base text from previous contracts when you're drafting a new contract, remember to double check your de definitions again at the end. Uh, thanks for that, Paul. I think we've got an idea now why solid definition clause is so important. But what about the interpretation section? What does this do? So an interpretation clause sets the rules for understanding the contract's language and ensuring it's always interpreted consistently. It's a helpful reference point to clarify and avoid unnecessary repetition. All right. Um, are you able to provide some examples of this? Yeah, sure. A straightforward example is clarifying that writing includes email. That saves having to repeat this every time the contract says something has to be in writing. It avoids the reader questioning, does that include email every time? Yep. And another one might be to say that references to clauses or schedules are specifically to clauses and schedules of the same agreement, which avoids potential ambiguity. Yeah. Another thing commonly in the interpretation clause is how to interpret references to legislation. 
Um, by legislation, you mean laws and statutes set out by governments. Exactly. So an interpretation clause should provide certainty around whether references to legislation in the contract are to legislation as it stands when the contract is signed or whether it includes any updates to legislation during the term of the contract. The standard position is for the clause to say that references to legislation are to the legislation as amended or extended. This ensures the contract remains up to date and in compliance with the latest legal requirements. It also allows the contract to remain valid and enforceable even if the reference legislation goes under change. That's right. Uh, one more example you often see in interpretation clause is an explanation of the word includes. Usually it explains that use of includes in a list means the list is only illustrative of a larger list of the same type of things and not an exhaustive list. So for example, in your clauses, parties often list a series of events or circumstances that will qualify as a force majeure event like natural disasters, acts of terrorism, or government actions. Where the list uses the word includes, and includes is said to be non-exhaustive in the interpretations clause, that means a list of force majeure events could be longer than those specified in the contract. Yeah, this is an interesting one though, as usually parties will want to limit the list of force majeure events. Yeah, so it's always a good idea to check both your interpretations clause and to ensure you're being precise when drafting lists in the contract. Yeah, agreed. And by the way, what happens if you don't include an interpretation clause? Good question. Well, without one, if there was a dispute, the court would just interpret the contract in line with legal principles and its own interpretations, which may not align with how the parties originally envisioned their contract working. So it pays to always include an interpretations clause and to be clear and specific. Yeah. One other thing worth mentioning is that the interpretation clause usually includes something around precedence. Yeah, yeah. Um, this clarifies what order the contract will be interpreted if there's any conflict between different parts of the contract, for example, the schedules and the main terms and conditions. Yeah, not a situation you'd want if people have been careful, but it does happen. And in that situation, you look to the precedence part of the interpretation clause. If it says that a schedule always comes first, in the event of a conflict, it means you can say, okay, we'll use what's in the schedule to move forward. And it's also worth mentioning that there's more detail on precedence in the shoe pod on construction of a contract, which we'll be publishing quite soon. So look out for that one. Yeah, good tip. Okay, so we've covered a lot, so we'll wrap up fairly quickly. Let's finish with some tips for drafting an effective definitions and interpretation clause. Okay, sure. Uh, first of all, be consistent. The first letter of each word in a defined term should be capitalised, then always stick to that convention throughout the contract. Yeah. Try not to have synonyms for the same concept. Only use one defined term for each thing where, pos where possible. Never include obligations or conditions or warranties in a definition. These things should be included in the actual body of the contract. Yeah, and define a term as narrowly and precisely as possible. And finally, it sounds obvious, all the, def the, the defined terms alphabetically. Yeah. As a more general point, it's not always necessary to include a separate definitions clause in a short contract, but in that situation, you should still define any terms after they appear, when they're important and if they appear more than once in the contract. Yeah, generally, we'd say where the contract is more than five or so pages long, it's best to bring the defined terms together with one clause at the beginning. Yeah. And on the other hand, where the contract is particularly long, say kind of 50 to 100 pages plus, 
you might want to consider putting the definitions in a specific schedule. This avoids having a long clause at the very beginning of the contract. Oh, good tip. Um, and for the interpretations clause? Yeah, first of all, include one and then make sure that the clause is clear and unambiguous. Give some thought to it and make sure that both parties agree the principles that you're setting out. And you might also want to consider seeking legal advice if you have any concerns about drafting the definitions or the interpretations clause. Agreed. So to sum up, definitions and interpretation clauses are useful provisions in any contract as they add clarity, avoid confusion, and enable the contract to properly align with the party's intentions. They can also save space and improve the readability of the contract. Agreed. Well, that brings us to the end of today's session. We hope you found it informative. Of course, if you need any assistance with anything that we've touched on today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So for Paul and me, thank you very much for listening. Thank you. 